The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Good morning. This is Cheryl Phillips. I'm in hosting for Kate today. Uh, I'm a faculty member for our leadership coaching program, and I also co-direct the Institute's program on transformational leadership. I'm so pleased today to welcome Rasmus Hugard to our show. Welcome, Rasmus. Rasmus is the author of a new book on mindfulness in the workplace. It's called One Second Ahead, Enhance Your Performance at Work with Mindfulness. He's also the founder and managing director of The Potential Project, and he works internationally with organizations and leaders to really help them become more focused, effective, and clear uh, using mindfulness. So I'm, I'm just fascinated to speak to you today, Rasmus. Welcome to our show. Thanks so much, Cheryl. My pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the really interesting piece for me is that you're, you're doing this so much in the organizational context. And I wonder if you could get us started today by telling us a little bit about how you got into this work and um, how you would really even describe the work that you do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can certainly do that. I am very excited about what uh, me and my colleagues around the, the world are doing, so I will happily share that. Uh, so my own background is, uh, is with uh, 25 years of uh, practicing and teaching mindfulness, but more in, let's say, private settings. And uh, I ended up as a researcher and uh, ended up in the corporate world with the Sony Corporation, where I was leading a number of, uh, of people. And what, uh, what really what struck me was that when I was moving around in the office environment, seeing how distracted people are in general nowadays, because we are living in a world where there are so many screens, there are so many distractions, so much going on all the time. And I could see on the people that I was leading and I could see on my own manager and the people in the organization in general, that people were not as focused as they could be. And I realized there was a huge potential to be developed in terms of productivity, in terms of effectiveness, but also in terms of, of well-being, because what happens when we are very often distracted is we get more stressed and, uh, and more exhausted, basically. So that's how, it, uh, that's, how it's, that's how it started. That was my motivation for getting started, to improve effectiveness, productivity, and well-being in, in organizations. That's that's wonderful. And so what is the potential project? Is that the name of your company or is that the name of a particular initiative? I'm I'm curious about about what the potential project is. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so the potential project is a, is a the leading global organization bringing mindfulness or mind training to the corporate world. So we are a 
global organization that is uh, fiscally present in 25 countries, including most states in, in the U.S. and in Canada as well. And uh, we are a number of around 200 people who are working with organizations like Accenture and Nike, American Express, and so on, to bring in uh, long-standing training programs, again, to increase effectiveness and performance in organizations. That's great. That's great. So um, uh, we'll start with the title of your book. And I, I love the title, One Second Ahead, right? And it has a, a great subtitle, but the, the core title is, is maybe even more interesting. Um, but I also realize that I've kind of made up my own story <laughs> about what it means <laughs> to be one second ahead. So uh, yeah. tell us how that came to be and what you, what you really mean by one second ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So it is a bit uh, a bit funny to call a book on mindfulness because mindfulness is about being in the present moment, obviously, to call it one second ahead. But it has a, has a quite peculiar and, and, and telling story. So a number of years ago, uh, when we were all way up and running with our operations, I was personally approached by a senior leader in a finance institution who came to me and told me about his life, which was including 200 emails every day, which was including back-to-back meetings, which was including managing a a large group of people uh, while still himself being managed by three partners of the organization. So he basically said that he felt so busy, so busy that he had gone on autopilot. And I think many of the listeners now will will appreciate this feeling that we can, when we get really busy, we go on autopilot, we go in reactivity mode. And he explained that he felt like when an email would come in, he would just react and write something back. When a text message would come on his phone, he would just react and text something back. He was constantly in reactivity mode, which he was very unhappy about. He was a leader, and he came and said he would like to have more empathy, he would like to be more focused, he would like to be more stressed and have more clarity of mind. And so we started this one-to-one program um, where he had to visit me once every week for 10 weeks. He had to initiate a daily practice of 10 minutes mindfulness training. And he had to gradually, week by week, alter his, his habits of dealing with emails, his ways of conducting meetings, his way of setting and sticking to priorities, and so on. And after these 10 weeks... Uh, he came to me, and for the last time we were meeting, and I asked him, so Jacob, you've been doing this for 10 weeks, and you were already very busy, so tell me what you got out of it. And he looked at me, and he said, one second. And at first I thought, that's a really, really bad for business uh, <laughs> case, because spending so much time getting one second doesn't really take you very far. But his explanation was quite profound. He said he had experienced he had gotten one second of mental freedom that every time a distraction, whether that was an email, a text message, an employee or one of his managers would come to him, he had one second of freedom to choose the appropriate response rather than going to reactivity. So rather than just reacting, he could respond to any situation which allowed him to choose to be empathetic in situations, to choose to be focused, chose not to be stressed about things. So this one second of freedom in, in the mind basically became the enabler for him to develop the qualities that were really important for him as a leader. That's and that's, that's really what mindfulness is about, becoming one second ahead of our own thoughts and all the stuff that we encounter in the world. It's such a, it's such a great story. And so 
uh, relatable to everyone that's listening. I have, have no doubt about that. And uh, so, and good to clear up that this book is not going to give you ex- extra seconds in your day. <laughs> it's going to help you, you learn to have that momentary pause before you are in reaction. So that's, that's wonderful. I, it leads us right into um, a piece of your book. In the intro, uh, you have an acronym, PAID, P-A-I-D, because we're all paid to work, right? And I think this is such a brilliant acronym for kind of the state of our current work environment. So I wonder if you might tell our audience what it stands for and and what you think is really happening in our environments today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So no matter where I go in the world, whether that's Australia, Europe, Asia, or North America, we find that people are facing this paid reality. And what the paid reality stands for is the P for being under pressure, the A for being always on, the I for being information overloaded, and the D for working environments that are heavily distracted. So under pressure, always on, information overloaded and distracted. That's the paid reality. And across cultures, across geographical regions, and across all industries, we have seen that this is a fact for everybody nowadays. And that's so, you know, I, I feel like I get the question a lot in my client systems of um, this craziness is just here, right? Like they'll, they'll want the validation that they're more crazy and busy than the next work environment. But you're seeing it across industries, across, um, across beyond the U.S. culture as well, correct? Absolutely. There is uh, there's no doubt that uh, that U.S. is certainly a paid uh, region, but it is the same uh, all around the world. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, great. And, and you, you speak in your book as well that we really have kind of an action addiction. And so is there anything more you would say about that, that sort of uh, <laughs> addictive quality of action that we have? Yeah. So there is, uh, I mean, what naturally happens when we are in this paid reality and constantly bombarded with distractions is that our mind or our brain just by default starts to multitask. The brain, when it's confronted with more than one, uh, one topic at the time, one challenge at the time, it tries to solve both of them at the same time. We start to multitask. And according to all the research that has been conducted on multitasking, it's really the worst possible coping mechanism in the paid reality. Mm. One of the severe implications of multitasking is that we lose our sense of prioritization. We start to just do everything that comes our way. Instead of doing the right things, we do everything. And the word for that would be action addiction. We are simply addicted to just doing things. From a neurological point of view, we know that every time we accomplish a small task, as insignificant and unimportant it may be, it gives us a little injection of dopamine in the brain, which makes us feel, you know, comfortable, yeah. like we did something important. And dopamine is highly addictive. So when we have just replied to a small email, we get a little bit of dopamine, which makes us want to reply to more emails. And we all know that emails is not the most productive uh, thing that we're doing during our work necessarily. Action addiction is about doing a lot of things, not doing the right things. So both that that just crossing something off our list or that quick action has a dopamine hit, as well as the the bings and the bangs and the booms that are coming in from all our technology. Those are all giving us 
sort of the dopamine hit, and so that becomes the addictive quality. That's that's fascinating. And, in, you know, so speak, and in, in a few minutes we're, we're going to go to a break, and we're going to come back and talk about um, some fabulous techniques, right, that, that you are in your book. But can you speak just a little bit about um, this idea of multitasking versus task shifting or shift tasking? You know, it, it, are we really multitasking? Can we really even do that? From a just from a pure neurological perspective. <laughs> yeah, that is a, that is a great question, Cheryl. Thank you for asking that. It's certainly a topic that I'm very passionate about. No, we cannot multitask. We can do physical multitasking, like start the dishwasher and then we go and do something else. But mentally, we can only attend to one thing at a time. So right now, I'm talking to you. I cannot think about what I'll be doing next. I can switch very briefly between having this conversation with you, and then thinking about what I'll do next. But it is switching between tasks. So really multitasking is something that computers can do because they're more processes. We have one brain, so from a neurological point of view, we cannot multitask. And what is happening when we try to do it, when we switch tasking, is we lose prioritization, we lose sense of overview, we lose focus, we lose our attention, we lose well-being, we lose creativity. So we're losing out on all aspects of uh, of performance when we are trying to multitask. Yeah, and it's such a, I, I think this is a very powerful piece of what we're, you know, I'm saying it, I know, again and again to clients out in the, the work, and I think we still don't quite believe it, and so I, um, I love that science is kind of backing up what we feel like we knew, and, uh, and it, it's, it's just so important, right, such an important piece. So before we head to break, I'd love to define, um, really define what you mean, what you personally, how you would define mindfulness. And you've been practicing and thinking and writing about this well before it became so popularized, if you will, in the, in the sort of, you can read on Time Magazine now about mindfulness. But how, yeah. what's your definition? Uh, I'd like to hear that. Yeah, so... Uh... So mindfulness is really the ability to pay attention at will on the whatever topic we have at hand. So like right now in this moment, be present with you in this conversation. So having focus, but combined with the awareness of what's going on around us without getting absorbed in it. So really having attentional skill to be present right now while having awareness of what's going on around us. Mm-hmm. And there are two aspects of mindfulness. There is the, the practice of mindfulness, which is the formal practice. And I think after the break, if there's time, I could guide a, a short session on that. And the other aspect of it is being mindful in the moment, which is like, again, attending to this conversation we are having right now. Right. And, and you use the language of, you know, that it's both about sharp focus and open awareness. And I love that that concept that it's, that it's both, right? And so yeah. um, why should leaders and or, and or people that coach leaders care about this? How do we convince I them? Think, <laughs> I, think, I think leaders and the coaches alike should care a lot about this because what we face in this paid reality is that, that because we are so constantly distracted is that according to research at least, we are simply losing our ability to pay attention. According to research published in Science uh, uh, two years ago, um, we are not paying attention 
46.9% of our waking hours. So that's basically half of the time you're at work. You're really not paying attention to the task at hand. Wow. And obviously when we're not paying attention to what we are doing right now, and our mind is wandering away constantly, we are not as productive, we are not as performing, we are basically not living up to our best. And on top of that, we get more stressed and we are not necessarily aware of other people, their needs, their emotions, as well as our own emotions. So a big part of mindfulness is also the caring for ourselves and caring for other people, which is a natural thing that comes out of having awareness. Yeah. Wow, 50% of the time. That's that's amazing. And as soon as you say that, I'm like, wow, I think that's a good day for me that I'm paying attention 50% of the time, like really paying attention. That's awesome. Okay, so um, so I love how your book is organized, and uh, you know we we spoke about this, and it, it might be sort of a um, uh, the the people who publish you may want want it in this way, but I think it speaks so much to the way that leaders and coaches would organize around this topic, and it kind of flips on its head what some other authors in the genre, if you will, <laughs> have done, and it starts with the practical techniques, and it kind of reminds me of, um, of Brene Brown, you know, in her famous TED Talk saying, I just need some strategies. And so you really <laughs> begin with the strategies. And so when we, when we come back from break, we're going to dive into some of those. You have uh, 16 topics um, that, that you really give practical or pragmatic techniques, mindfulness techniques. 16 topics, everything from email to sleep to commuting, things we all deal with. Uh, we won't dive into all of them, but we'll, we'll pick a few of those that we'll talk about. Um, and so when we come back from the break, I'd really um, personally like to start with the idea of email, since that is the thing that probably all of us struggle with more than, more than anything. So how does that sound? That sounds like a great idea. Absolutely. Great. I'm game. Great. So we'll be back in just a moment with uh, my guest, Rasmus Hugard. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu 
forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, Produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Hi, it's Cheryl Phillips again, hosting for Kate with my guest, Rasmus Hugard, who is the author of a new book called One Second Ahead. And before the break, we promised you some strategies. So, uh, Rasmus, you, as I said, your, your book is organized uh, in such an interesting way, and it starts right off with dealing with the topics that we all are struggling with. Um, so let's focus on email. And we, I would love to hear, and our guests would love to hear, what thoughts you have about how to do this email thing more mindfully. Absolutely. Uh, so I think there's a, a, a lot to gain when it comes to emails. As we, most of us at least experience, email is uh, is quite detrimental to our productivity nowadays, and lots of research is backing this up. But if we just take a step back, it's actually not emails that is anything wrong with email. It's an amazing way of communication. Uh, we can communicate to thousands of people within minutes. It is more the way that we use email that is sometimes getting in our way. And if we go back to what we talked about just before the break in terms of multitasking, the biggest cause of multitasking for most of us is certainly emails. And emails become a pervasive distraction that is killing our focus, creativity, and performance simply because when we are emailing, we tend to switch between emails. We tend to you know, have a meeting, and then we check emails. We tend to write a report, and then emails pop up. So emails are like coming at us all the time and making us switch our attention all the time, which is what is creating attention deficit trait, killing our focus. So, yeah, so there are you just introduced that that idea of ADT, right? Attention deficit. It's like having ADD, but for it's um, been put upon us, right? In the in the modern yeah. way. So yeah, what exactly. do we do about it? What are some ideas that you have? Yeah. So there are three tips that I would certainly like to provide here, which are the, the, the three top ones. First thing is kill all notifications. Simply switch any kind of bell, any kind of icon, all notifications that tells you that there's a new email coming in, switch them all off. That way you will be distracted much, much, much less during the day and be able to be more productive 
So that's a very simple one. Another uh, strategy that is really useful is to allocate time slots for dealing with emails. Instead of keeping your uh, email application open all the time, whereby you'll be tempted to just go in and check whether there are new emails and thereby get a, a little dopamine kick, you discipline yourself to check emails, let's say, once an hour or once every four hours, whatever is allowed in whatever culture you are. So allocate time slots for dealing with emails, which allows you to have time slots for other focused activities. And then the last tip that I would give is to not read emails as first thing in the morning. If we look at it from a neurological point of view, after a night's sleep, our brain is most focused. It has the biggest sense of what our high priorities, and it has most overview in general. What happens the moment we open our inboxes, we are bombarded with uh, 50 uh, detailed questions and unsolved issues from yesterday, whereby our mind, first of all, becomes detail-oriented, secondly, becomes direct to, directed towards the past rather than the future. So it keeps holding us back, and it kills our best mind uh, capacity. So taking the first 15 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe even two hours in the morning, for focused, important, high-priority tasks rather than checking emails is a really, really great skill. I, I particularly love that last one, right? So I feel like many of us have been experimenting with, with you know, turning off our notifications or trying to chunk our time so that we can check email not, not consistently, right? So those are good habits. I love that third one because um, I think... I am guilty of this, and probably everybody I know that we, our phone is by our bed, and so we roll over in the morning and check email within the first, you know, 15 minutes of e- before we even get in the shower. So it's already <laughs> monopolizing us. So I, I, I love that, and it takes um, takes a lot of discipline. Do you do you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, so these are it's a great idea. Do you have any thoughts on how you make it a habit? Like, what do we have to do to actually make that take hold for us if we wanted to try just these things on email? Hmm. It is, uh, that, that is a very good question because everything that I'm saying is just fairly common sense challenges. How do we actually action on it? And uh, one thing would be to discuss this with colleagues, with your manager in general, and put it into the culture of the organization. Most of the organizations we work with they start to implement really, really uh, drastic email um, email cultures like no emails in the morning or sometimes switching off the email server after 8 o'clock in the evening and so on. So culture, there's a lot that can be done individually. You know, put your, put your phone on flight mode. You probably won't get any calls like the first thing in the morning. So put it on flight mode and only turn it on when you are ready to have it turned on. Um, so really small, practical, tactical things and repeat it day after day. That is, that is the way to go about it. Yeah, and the key is repeating it day after day. And if you're a leader, so the leaders that are listening, you really are setting the culture. And so, so uh, very often uh, my clients will say, well, I'm emailing at night, but I'm just catching up. I don't expect anyone to respond to me. Well, yeah. of course, you're setting the tone. So if you email, others will email you. In kind, so you really have to have a collective, uh, collective understanding. Um, so let's turn to a second hot topic, which is sleep. And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts 
um, other than not rolling over and checking our email in the middle of the night, <laughs> what, what other ideas do you have around, around sleep, and what is the research really saying on this front? Yeah, there's a lot to say about, uh, about sleep and how mindfulness can certainly help us uh, get better sleep. First of all, some stats. I think it is around 50% of uh, Americans that are sleep-deprived uh, heavily or lightly. And as we know, sleep deprivation is bringing attention deficit. It is bringing bad mood. It is bringing bad memory, poor uh, uh, ability to uh, utilize nutrition, and so on. There's really a lot to say about the downsides of not getting enough sleep. Um, according to researchers, we need an average of seven to eight hours of sleep every night. If we don't get that, we will pay back, if not tomorrow, then in some years in terms of health and mental capacity. So the question is, how can we use mindfulness to get better sleep? And there are some really practical uh, things that we can do. First of all, when we go to bed, there are a few th simple things to follow. One is not to look at any screens the last 45 minutes before you actually go to bed. And screens, the reason why you shouldn't do that is that screens has a lot of uh, blue light rays, and blue light rays is suppressing what is called uh, melatonin, which is the sleep hormone that is released in the pineal gland of the brain, making us feel drowsy and fall asleep. So if you look at a screen 45 minutes before you are going to bed, it will be hard of you to fall asleep. That's fascinating. So, uh, it's, it's quite fascinating, but it also means that we need to be disciplined about not doing that. And it's everything from TV to computers to your phone. Everything that has a screen has blue rays, so don't do that before you go to bed. Mm -hmm. Another really practical tip is to, as you go to bed, rather than just you know, putting on your pajamas, brushing your teeth, and, 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 and throwing yourself uh, between the sheets, is to sit down for just two minutes and do a short mindfulness practice. And this will help you to let go of all the unresolved issues from the day and fall asleep with a more, let's say, clear and calm mind. That's great. Those are great techniques. Um, so the, the screen, 45 minutes, that's a very important. And seven to eight hours, everybody write that down <laughs> and try to increase by, you know, at least 30 minutes a, a day until you get up to that because I, uh, so many people are not getting that. And, again, I'm, I'm happy that the science is telling us what we, kind of the old sage advice that we've always known about getting your sleep. Okay, so let's, uh, let's do one more. Uh, so assuming we've got our email under control, we're getting our sleep, uh, let's talk about now entering in with others and doing meetings in a more uh, mindful and productive way. So what's your advice around meetings? Um, very good um, and very important because most people nowadays are living a work life that has a lot of meetings. So... There's a beautiful Chinese proverb which goes, presence is the most precious gift you can give to others. And the word presence itself is saying it. Uh, I mean, presence is coming from the ability to be present, which is a gift in itself. But that's the softer side. The harder right. side is if you imagine uh, the way that meetings are conducted nowadays in most organizations, it's often back-to-back -back meetings, which means uh, that five minutes past the hour, people are leaving their meeting five minutes too late and running to the next meeting room mm -hmm. with 
you know, a mind that is full of the previous meeting, which means the first 15 minutes, many people in the meeting are really just sitting there and trying to get their minds wrapped around the new agenda, the new people in the room, which is, of course, not a very productive thing. If you are not paying attention in a meeting, you're wasting your own time, but you're also wasting other people's time. So the question is, how can we become more mindful? How can we become more productive by being mindful in meetings together? And there are a few simple strategies uh, that can be applied. The first one is to prepare yourself mentally for any meeting. And preparing for a meeting means letting go of all the stuff you're coming from. So taking one minute at the beginning of the meeting, either as a group or as you walk to the meeting room, to just allow yourself to focus on nothing, whereby you gradually let go of all the stuff you're coming from. So simply having a mindful break before starting the meeting. That is the most important uh, rule of mindful meetings, I would say. Second one would be to end the meeting at least five minutes to the hour so that everybody has the chance to transition mindfully into the next meeting. And really, if we have 55 or 60 minutes, it doesn't matter in terms of what we get out of it, but it does... uh, have a huge impact on our ability to be present with the next task at hand. Yeah, That's a, those are great thoughts, and it's uh, we really are so scheduled back to back to back that it takes um, the leader putting some of that into the cultural norm, even if it's managing their own schedule so that they're not, they're not scheduled in that particular way, so that they can have that mindfulness one one to the next. Um, so we have we have a few minutes before break. And I wonder, since we've just come off talking about meetings, could you, do you think you have time uh, to lead us through a short mindfulness practice just so we get the idea of what that entering into a meeting in that way might even be? Yeah, yeah, I can certainly do that. So I'll invite all the, the listeners right now to, if you have anything in your hands, to put that down. And wherever you're sitting, Just make sure you're sitting comfortably. Place both feet on the ground and sit with a straight back. And then in a gentle, not a forced way, but in a gentle way, try and direct your full attention to the experience of your breath and how your breath is, let's say, at your belly region right now. And just notice the inflow of the air and the outflow. And whatever thoughts may come up as you're sitting and focusing on your breath, just acknowledge that a thought arises or a sound or a bodily sensation. Just acknowledge it. And by doing so, return your attention back to the breathing again. Breathing in, observing your in-breath, breathing out, and observing your out-breath. When distractions come in, whatever they are, just acknowledge them and return back to the breath again.
And then in your own pace, you can let go of the exercise again and open your eyes if you had them closed. And this is really the, the basics of a mindfulness practice, is this ability of honing your attention in on one item, in this case your breath. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, and again and again letting go of distractions, your mind will become gradually more calm, it will become more focused, and it will become more clear, according to researchers and certainly according to the many, many tens of thousands of people that we have trained. Yeah. That's the basics, yeah. And, and I, um, I pre- thank you for doing that, first of all. It's <laughs> for the show host to not um, full folly and, you know, fully fall into that was the <laughs> challenge there. Um, I, I like the, the piece that you in, inserted there around it's not about not having distractions, but it's about when the distractions come, being able to notice it and let it go and come back to breath, Right. And so when, in your book, you, you call this, again, another sort of memorable way to hold it is um, A, B, C, D. And so I wonder if you could just very quickly tell us what that stands for. I think you just used it, but could you just tell yeah. us what the A, B, C, D stands for, and then we'll head to break. Yeah, absolutely. So the A stands for anatomy, which is all about sitting comfortably so the body does not get in the way for the for the mental activities. So sitting on a chair, sitting on a couch, doesn't matter, just sit comfortably. The B stands for breathing. So attending to your breath in a gentle way, in a neutral way, not trying to force your breath, make it deeper or longer. Just breathe and observe the breath. Mm-hmm. And the D, sorry, the C stands for counting. So counting your breath and you count by breathing in, breathing out, at the end of the out-breath, count one. In, out, two, and you count that way up to ten. When you reach ten, you count backwards down to one again. So simply just counting your breath because that allows you to better stay focused on it. And then the last point, the D stands for distractions, and that's everything that is not breath is a distraction. And it's yeah. inevitable. It's going to happen all the time, and for your rest of your life, you will be distracted in this practice. And the art is simply to notice it and then gently return your attention back to the breath again. Yes, that's great. So A, B, C, D. Um, Thank you so much for leading us in that practice. So we're going to head to break. And when we come back, we're going to focus on uh, the last piece here around mental strategies, or as I really think of them, kind of ways of being. Uh, So we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Thanks, Rasmus. You're welcome. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. 
Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Hi, it's Cheryl Phillips sitting in for Kate today, and we're here for our last segment with um, our wonderful guest today, Rasmus Hukard who is the author of One Second Ahead, and he's a, a trainer and um, practitioner of mindfulness and works with organizations really all over the world. And we've been talking, um, Rasmus, about some nice practical strategies and techniques which we all need, and I encourage everyone to, um, to get the book and, and, and really learn about the other 13 that we, <laughs> that we didn't get to. Um, but I want to turn now with our last set of time here to what you label as mental strategies. And again, I, I kind of think of this as, as what we would talk to leaders and coaches about as kind of ways of being. And so we're, we're going to talk about a few of these. And one of them, what I would love to begin with, is the idea of beginner's mind. And uh, when we spoke previously, I, I think I told you that in all Georgetown programs, we start by having our coaches or our leaders write down I am a great leader, I am a great coach, whatever it happens to be, and then flip the page and write down in the domain of coaching or in the domain of leadership, I'm a beginner. So it really is uh, very foundational to how we think about leadership, coaching, and, and learning. Um, so I'd love to hear your, your thoughts about what this means, the idea of a beginner's mind. Right. Um, and it's a wonderful topic, especially when we come to leadership and business in general. Uh, a beginner's mind is basically the mental ability of seeing things as they are, not as they were or as we would like them to be, but as they are. 
and to take an example of uh, of a leader who uh, not uh, many years ago completely lacked the ability of a beginner's mind, uh, we need to look at Nokia and uh, Nokia that was the absolute world leader of uh, mo- mobile phones just less than, uh, what is that, seven, eight years ago. Uh, they had more than 50% of the world markets and at that point, um, Steve Jobs went on stage and introduced the uh, the iPhone, the first iPhone, and the CEO of Nokia basically presented to all of his staff around the world that the iPhone was ne- nothing but a niche product and would never become more than that. And two years later, Nokia was down on 2% of the global uh, mobile market. Now, what he was lacking was the ability to see things as they are, not as they used to be. He was so absorbed in his success, in the success of Nokia, that they had indeed produced a fantastic uh, phone, but that the world had moved on. And someone with a huge beginner's mind, Steve Jobs, who just couldn't accept that you couldn't you know, have a touchscreen, that you had to have so many buttons on the phone, he had a complete beginner's mind to the idea of how a phone should operate and how it should be operated. So he came in with a beginner's mind, seeing a tremendous opportunity in the market for creating something that was much better than was there before. That is a good example of a beginner's mind. The beginner's mind is something that we can develop. Some of us has more of it naturally. Some of us have less. But in mindfulness practice, it has been shown that we are naturally developing that ability to see things as they are, not as they were or as we would like them to be, but really as they are, and thereby make better and more informed decisions on how we run our business and how we manage our people. That's, that's uh, it's fascinating. So is it a, a version of kind of open awareness? Is it um, looking at what's possible and not it, it's as they are, but also what could be possible from a fresh place? Is that sort of how you think of it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, without a, without awareness of what's going on around us, but also inside of us, we can't tap into the endless possibilities and, and, and potential that is in the reality. I think when Steve Jobs got the idea of the iPhone, you know, he was certainly tapping into to not just his own creativity, but also the needs and requests from uh, from from people around him that he was engaging with. So having that awareness of what's going on around us is crucial for a beginner's mind. Yeah. So I wonder, um, as is, you know, I was looking for a place to sneak this in, and maybe this is the place. So this idea that's um, it's not its own topic in your book, but it's threaded throughout of the the subconscious mind. And so I'm wondering how this plays in here, and that difference between the conscious mind, which we all understand that, and the role that the subconscious mind plays in creativity and, you know, setting and accomplishing our goals. Can you just speak about that a, a little bit? Absolutely. And it's, it's, a, it's a key theme, it's a key topic that, uh, that may sound very boring, psychological, scientific, but which is really, really key for leaders and coaches alike to understand and to, uh, to, uh, to be able to work with. So if we just look at the, the brain and its functions, it has basically the conscious and the subconscious mind. The conscious mind has around seven bits of information that we can, that we can, that we can work with per second, which in itself is impressive. 
but the subconscious mind has more than 11 million bits that it can process per second. So our subconscious is obviously much, much, much stronger than our conscious. And that means that many of the decisions we make are not necessarily based on conscious thoughts, but all kinds of subconscious processes in our mind. And becoming aware of that, we can start to better tap into the subconscious. As you mentioned in the process of uh, creativity, creativity is really coming when we have the ability to tap into all of the, let's say, uh, data that we have in our subconscious. Steve Jobs is, again, a great example of that. He was basically collecting lots of data with awareness uh, in his subconscious, but then having the conscious ability to tap into that, which is, was the foundation for his, uh, his immense creativity. And that's it's pretty amazing. Gold, gold. So all all yeah. this is sort of running in the background for us. And so any, any quick uh, ideas on how, to, how we consciously <laughs> get this, get, put yeah, the subconscious absolutely. to work for us? Definitely. So one, one strategy, the main strategy is the practice of mindfulness. The more we practice mindfulness, the more we gain, let's say, insight into our subconscious mind and our, our unconscious bias and so on. So that in itself is an important strategy. Another one is to, to, if we want to work with creativity, is to do what is called creative breaks. So if you have a, a challenge, you need to come up with a new product, you need to come up with a new solution to an old problem. If you just sit and try and force it, it's not likely going to happen. If the listeners right now would think about when you last had a great idea, it was probably not when you were sitting at the computer writing emails. No. As a good likely, as a good likelihood, it was while you took a shower, which is yeah. always top one for most people, when you went for a walk, or when you had a good conversation with somebody. So when we let go of trying to force an idea coming out, that's when ideas arise. That's and uh, and so creativity is really about that ability of of letting go of forcing ideas to come. Yeah, and I like it's it's so interesting because all, it's not just um, we we all know that we all have this happen, right? It happens in the shower, on the long drive. Mine happens when I'm blow drying my hair, right? And it's the mind at work, though. It's not just happenstance. And yeah, so I think yeah. it's it's pretty fascinating that that's uh, 11 million bits happening uh, behind the scenes there, if you will. So, yeah, exactly. So let's turn, before we uh, have to wrap up in a few minutes, let's turn to a couple of, of other topics in, in, again, that kind of idea of mental strategies. And I, I picked a couple that uh, I feel like we don't talk enough about in the workplace. And so I want to start with kindness. And uh, I'd love to hear what you would like to say about the idea of kindness at, in the workplace and how we bring this in more. Yeah, very, very, very good topic. I believe that kindness is increasingly becoming a foundation for organizational performance and organizational uh, success. And that may be a bit counter to what many uh, managers and leaders think. Uh, but here's the point. In this paid reality where everything is moving faster, everything is changing by the day, and we are more distracted than ever before. 
we are getting fragmented not only mentally but also socially. And kindness, the, let's say, intention of caring for others, especially as leaders, if you have the intention or the motivation to care for the people you're leading, they will feel that and they will be more loyal to you, they will be more engaged, they will have more job satisfaction, and therefore they will be more productive. So kindness is not a nice-to-have. In today's work life, I think kindness is becoming a real need-to-have if you want to have people that are engaged. And we all know that all engagement surveys nowadays are really, really, really poor in general, globally more than 50% of the workforce is disengaged and more than 17% is actively disengaged. That's pretty amazing. And so, yeah, you know, it says it's, 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 uh, <laughs> it comes back to what we knew in kindergarten, you know. It's so <laughs> interesting. So what, would, what yeah. would be sort of an active way to be kind? You know, what, what are the... Yeah, how do we actively do that? What, what, what should, what's the one or two things we should be doing differently? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, I think there are, there are, of course, individual things that we can do, like simply choosing to be kind whenever possible. And, you know, it's really always possible to be kind. There's no, never a limit to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is also the social aspect of it, which is how do we organize ourselves as a culture and how do we engage with each other but also with and and our world in general. And I will share a, a good example of that. We were working with or are working with a global professional services firm and we're doing a training program for them uh, that spanned over 10 weeks, uh, small sessions every week. And in, I believe it was the, the sixth session, we were covering this topic of kindness and they were sitting there first a bit skeptical, you know, hands over across the chest and just thinking, what has this kindness got to do with professional services? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as they engaged in the, in the conversation, suddenly one of the, the senior managers just stopped and everybody kind of looked at her and she said, what if we would start to implement kindness as a part of our client strategy? We know we're smart but we also know that we can be perceived as cold and professional. But if we actually decided to not just care for the paycheck, but also care for the client and their well-being, how would that impact their perception of us? They would probably more like to engage with us and become repeat clients. Yeah. So they just saw that kindness could become a really important business strategy in terms of how they manage their clients. And they yeah. actually started to implement specific um, specific mechanisms for being kind in engagements, in emails, and so on. I, I, I love that example, and it really is sort of setting the the intention first, the mental strategy, or the sort of the way of being, and then it's it's really being in that question of what would what what would being kind look like in this situation? What would kindfulness do? What would kindness do now? Right. So um, I can't believe it, but we're edging up on the very end of our, our show. I wonder uh, if you might leave us, Rasmus, with sort of uh, one piece of advice. So if we could just, the leaders and coaches listening, just do one thing starting tomorrow, one or two things, what would, what would that be? Okay, it would, um, 
I mean, there are many techniques that can be done, and people can can read the book and and get get a hold of all of those. But the foundation would be to start a daily practice of mindfulness, because without that, everything else becomes a little bit wordy and uh, and not so impactful. So starting a daily practice of ten minutes of mindfulness training, and there are many great apps. We have an app that you can download, uh, looking for potential project mindfulness on either. Uh, Google or 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 iPhones, and uh, that will guide you through this process. And there are many other great apps. But a 10-minute daily practice of mindfulness in the morning before you go to work—that would be the, the the foundation. The second thing that I would suggest is to keep regular mindfulness breaks during the day. And when I say mindfulness breaks, I'm talking about breaks once every hour of just one minute, where you allow yourself to just do nothing. That's Look out great. the window, go to the restroom, do something where you're just not thinking about work or thinking about other things, just focusing on your breath. I love it. So wonderful. Thank you, Rasmus, so much for coming on our show today. And uh, we're lucky to have you one second ahead uh, with Rasmus Hugard. Thank you. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.